1: Joining us now, Bill Dudley, I'm pleased to say the Bloomberg opinion columnist, Princeton University senior research scholar and former New York Fed president joins us too. Bill, it's good to catch up with you. And i enjoy your pieces and your piece out this morning it's a little bit technical but i want you to run through things when the bank of england comes out with a rate decision bank rate means a lot for a lot of people in the uk for business loans for mortgages the fed funds rate is a different beast and you're pushing back against the continued use of targeting the fed funds rate and using it almost bill can you just walk me through the thinking here
2: well the federal funds rate used to be important because reserves in the banking system were quite scarce and so banks had to trade the federal funds rate federal funds between themselves to satisfy the reserve requirements. That's not the situation today. The banking system's awash in reserves as the Federal Reserve continues to buy 120 billion of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. So the federal fund market's become very different, very much, much smaller and much more idiosyncratic than it has been in the past. The motivation for this piece was the fact that the Fed last week uh, had to make a technical adjustment to two short-term interest rates the rate they pay on overnight reverse repurchase agreements, and the interest rate they pay on reserves. Five basis points each. Why? Supposedly keep the federal funds rate closer to the middle of its target range. Why are we targeting the federal funds rate in the first place at this point? It's no longer an important market. The Fed has the ability just to pay the interest on reserves. Why not, why not ditch the federal funds rate target and just set the interest rate on reserves at the level that's appropriate with the monetary conditions that the Fed seeks to accomplish?
1: Well, that's your simple solution. In your words, three words, drop the target. Bill, could you anticipate a communication issue around doing that if they were to do that this year? I think
2: they could explain it very easily. They, they would no longer have to make these technical adjustments that I think are more confusing than illuminating. Also, another thing that they need to do is, is exempt reserves from the leverage ratio. As they add more reserves to the banking system, that's putting downward pressure on rates. The whole reason why they had to make this technical adjustment to the federal fund, to these two interest rates, push the federal funds rate up was the fact that they're flooding the banking system with reserves. Banks don't want the reserves because of the leverage ratio, which is starting to bind as a capital requirement for banks. And so Bill, if you, you exempt from the leverage ratio, then that problem goes away as well.
3: And Bill, you're talking about the glut of uh, deposits that you're seeing on some of the bank books, with some banks even saying to their corporate clients, we don't even want your money uh, because it is getting to be excessive. Just taking a step back, how much is the change that you're proposing evidence that we're going to remain in this environment with a system awash in cash and the Federal Reserve pumping money continually into it, even though there is so much cash? How much is it just sort of acknowledgement of that reality over the near and frankly, not even that near term?
2: Well, I think we're going to be in a system where there's lots of reserves in the banking system for some time to come. First of all, the Fed's not going to stop their asset purchases quickly. It's probably going to continue well into the fall. So the balance sheet is going to continue to grow. The amount of reserves in the banking system are going to continue to grow. And then when it finally decides to start to normalize its balance sheet, the balance sheet is so big now, it's going to take a long time to get it back to you know, the $1.5 trillion of excess reserves that we had prior to the pandemic. So I think we have a system where the interest rate the Fed pays on reserves is the primary tool of monetary policy. Let's acknowledge that.
3: I understand, Bill, the argument that the Fed wants to continue with their very easy money policies just simply to allow inflation to pick up and allow employment to uh, get to a better place. However, people have pointed to certain frothier areas in the mortgage market in particular. Do you think it's advisable? Do you think that it would harm uh, the progress that the Fed is allowing to happen in the economy for them to pare back on some of the mortgage debt purchases that they make every month?
2: I think it would have an effect more on expectations about future monetary policy. We tell the market, the Fed has now acknowledged that they've made substantial further progress towards their goals. And so people would uh, change their expectations of the timing of tightening. So I don't think it would be that important in the narrowness of the housing market. I think it would be quite important as a signal of the monetary policy and the timing of of tightening of monetary policy. Is
4: that the preferred method versus... Versus- well, I don't think they're
2: going to do it. I don't think they're going to do it. I think they're going to be pretty patient here.
4: What about perhaps maybe more of an equal weighting taper I think a la December 2013 and a discussion of 5 billion in treasuries 5 billion in MBS is that just more of an easy path to go?
2: Well, I think that uh, you have a template from the last cycle and so to deviate from that template you have to have a really good reason. Mm. I don't think they have a really good reason. I think if they deviate from what they did last time just raised a bunch of questions. What are you concerned about? Why aren't you following the game plan that you followed last time?
1: What did we learn from last time around, Bill? The lessons of the last time we reduced asset purchases, and eventually, actually had some balance sheet reduction several years later.
2: Well, I think it went, in in, in, in all fairness, quite smoothly once the Fed communicated clearly about what's the what's the what's the sequence was going to be. First, we stop the asset purchases, we can taper the asset purchases down, then we raise short-term rates, and then we finally start to normalize the size of the balance sheet. So this time the market has a template to look at, last time they didn't. And so there was a lot more uncertainty about what the Fed was going to do uh, in the last cycle compared to this cycle. I think it's one reason why the markets are pretty comfortable with what the Fed's up to.
3: Do you think that there's too much Fed speak at this point? We've been talking about how there's very little dissent and there basically is a Fed official every hour speaking?
2: Well, there's always probably too much Fed speak. I mean, the, <laughs> thing, the thing to pay attention to is really the chairman, the vice chairman of the of the Board of Governors, and the vice chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee. So Powell, Clarita, and Williams. Bill, uh what they me say for jumping really, in.
1: Are you saying ignore the Fed presidents when they go around doing speeches?
3: Yes.
2: I wouldn't, I wouldn't say ignore the Fed presidents, <laughs> but put a lot less weight on them because they're just one member of the committee. I mean, the, 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 the big three set the agenda for the Federal Open Market Committee. But he's not going to do something if those three people aren't on board. So it's it's about weight. Don't ignore the presidents, but uh, don't uh, put too much weight on what, what one individual president
1: might say. Bill, Just how much they influence the conversation inside the Federal Reserve when you have those FOMC meetings, when you had the likes of Plosser, Fisher, really pushing back at the turn of the last crisis going through the recovery. Just how much do they influence the conversation? I think
2: they have an, they influence the conversation because they offer a, a different perspective, and I think diversity of views is actually important. Diversity of backgrounds is actually important in terms of getting good monetary policy making. But at the end of the day, uh, the committee is going to go where the consensus is. So if someone's always dissenting, they sort of marginalize themselves because they're not relevant in terms of figuring out where the where is the committee going to go uh, in the future. Right now, there's a lot of disagreement about you know when should we start to uh, paper asset purchases because people are uncertain about the uh, the, the, the state of the recovery and how fast will it cut into uh, unused labor resources there's quite a bit of disagreement right now about timing but the people that matter are williams larida and of course powell because uh, they're the ones who are going to determine the ultimate timing
1: hey bill it's going to catch up as always good to see a great piece too available on bloomberg.com and on the bloomberg terminal bill dudley there bloomberg opinion columnist and former new york fed president
3: Danny Blanchflower, Dartmouth professor of economics uh, and former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member joining us now. We were just talking about how there is not much being said that is new. However, we may hear something in a half hour time from the Bank of England when they release their rate decision. You're looking for a potential policy error. Can you explain?
5: Well, (laughs) both the Fed and the Bank of England are struggling in the dark. Uh, We've never seen anything like this. And the best thing is to simply wait and see. Um, so any any suggestion that they have a clue, I mean, people say things like, I think we're going to tighten in 2022 and 2023. Well, they're just kind of winging it. I think that the potential error here at the bank is to say that they're going to start to perhaps um, do less QE, uh, start, sort of stop it by August rather than December. Um, as the economy goes into lockdown, um, the 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 data really are very confusing. So I think the sensible thing for them to do is to say we're continuing, we're waiting, and we're watching. Two two people are going to leave the committee. Haldane, this is his last meeting. Um, flyge leaves in August, and we get Catherine Mann. So I think the right thing to do is to just say waiting, watching, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and and signaling that they have a clue what they're going to do in the future. I think would be a major error.
3: Well, uh, Danny, I got to think that all of people, uh, all of the discussion that we hear at a of Fed officials at a of Bank of England officials, basically gets shrugged off by markets because until Fe- uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell speaks, no one's going to listen. Basically, he's going to lead the charge right. globally when it comes to tightening, and until he does so, you know these members on different central banks can say whatever they want. No one will believe them. Isn't that the case? Well,
5: I I think that's right. And I think in many senses, Jay Powell and I both sound the same. He's been very sensible. Um, What did I just say? Waiting and watching, understanding they made a mistake in 2015 and accepted that, and saying, you know, we'll, we'll see how the economy moves I mean, we've still got to understand what happens with the vaccine and what happens in the the southern states in the United States, of course. But then there's all these issues about which firms are going to survive and are people going to change their long-run behaviour? And that's a risk to the downside. Are people going to keep those savings that they have and not, not spend them? We don't know, but the risks, I think, are to the downside. So if you go back to making the potential error people saying, oh, we need to worry about inflation. Well, what inflation? So the, the talk today is the Bank of England worries about inflation. Well, it's 2.1, and we've had two very weird months where the base effects dominated, and the slight changes in the last couple of months go away in 12 months' time. So everything looks to be transitory and temporary, and the answer is we just don't know. And Jay Powell has been, I think, fantastic, and he's just been saying essentially that. Wait, look. Uh, and we'll respond if we need to. But there ain't no inflation problem, despite the fact 2.1, and that's supposedly an inflation problem with a weird couple of months. Come on, folks, get real. Danny, do you think we're suffering from a bit of groupthink? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, so uh, the, the groupthink, in a way, though, if you follow Powell, is to be right. But I hear these these Fed governors, I hear Haldane at the Bank, of England, making ludicrous claims saying inflation's going to take off. Based upon what? Wild wishful thinking and guessing. That's not credible for a central bank. Danny, that dissent's healthy, isn't it?
1: Even if they disagree with you. Of course it is. It's healthy well, to have that. And does.
5: I think what I've missed over the
1: last 10 years, is particularly <laughs> with the Bank of England, since Governor Carney came out with some forward guidance right. that, let's face it, didn't work. But one thing right. he said off the back of that forward guidance is that it helped to tie the hands of the committee because he got everyone to agree with one thing <laughs> well, and no one could dissent anymore.
5: John, John the, the, you and I were just chatting on this. If you look, if you look at the Fed, not a single governor since Greenspan has ever dissented. Governors at the Bank of England have actually not dissented, although Haldane, chief economist, has. Um, I think a real debate is, is credible and sensible. But I think if you, if you realise that we just don't know, remember we saw the biggest drop in output ever seen, biggest and fastest drop in output ever seen. And the question is, what's the past data? Well, we have past data from the 1918 great influenza, um, and we've had, you know, so, so there's, there's really not much to go by. Um, so, yeah, you're right, dissent's quite good, but, but in a sense, much of the dissent we've actually seen over the last decade has been dissent in error. The, the, the reality is that people have argued that you should have raised rates and they have dissented on that side, and it's clear over the last decade every one of those folks was in error. You shouldn't have done that.
4: Big picture, Danny. A lot of the notes that I've read, the push for wage pressures, a focus on human capital, a right. shift to ESG. Those are structurally inflationary. Are we in a new inflationary regime?
5: Well, the answer the answer is go and read the blog written by C.C. Rouse, the, 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 the chair of the CEA, talks about actually the likelihood is that the wage data really are messed up. And reality is very soon we're going to see negative wage growth. I've got two nice indicators for the UK, how hard it is to understand wage growth. The official data came out this week on wage growth, 8.4%. But we've just had data this morning on the size of wage settlements, two. Um, and so what you have are these base effects and composition effects. It's very hard to understand what's going on. But in wage terms, we've seen the bottom of the wage distribution drop out. And so we're comparing to a weird thing from a year ago. Um, And so I think the evidence is actually that, um, yeah, there are going to be some bottlenecks, but that's not something you want to respond to instantly. So I I think that the, the wage pressure we will see. But I think a lot of it is, you know, the world is changing a bit.
4: How many more data points would it take for you to see? Three, four?
5: Um, I don't know. Um, I want to see evidence that significant bottlenecks are occurring, and I don't see that in the data. I'm not going to say three or four. I would want to see sustained evidence. But I think the wage settlement evidence is pretty good. Two percent, same as it's been for the last decade. It's been two, 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 two. Yes, there are temporary bottlenecks. But what should the central bank do to respond to a temporary bottleneck? Think of price changes. We saw a big rise in timber prices. OK, people don't have to buy timber. And so the price of timber now is halved. So we, I think we'll, we, we just have to watch an economy recovering from a shock we've never seen before.
1: Danny, just to conclude things, someone wrote into me just moments ago, and I think you'd agree with them. The only mistake has been to be too hawkish, never too dovish. That's been true over the last 10 years. Is that what you worry
5: about now? Uh, uh, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't understand how, how is it an error to sit and wait and watch? Just wait. Don't 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 do anything more than you're doing now, and watch as the economy resolves itself. Look 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 at the hawkish folk who I've been on your programmes with many times over the last decade, telling us inflation was going to take off. That's what it was going to do. You had to raise rates. All of that was nonsense. So I think the the error has always been in in a recovery. You tighten too quickly. There's, no, there's really no error to be had in waiting and looking and seeing. And I think that's what's going to, And we're going to see in the UK, the potential is the government is going to withdraw the stimulus, perhaps in September. In the U, In the US, these unemployment benefits are going to go away. And then we'll see. We'll see what, how the economy bounces back. But, you know, wait, look, watch, and don't make another Big mistakes like George Osborne did in the U.K. in 2010. Danny, disaster. We need a, a roundtable, don't we, with you and Andrew sentence. Yeah. We need to do that again. Oh, we no. We get sentence <laughs> Like the no. good old days. I no. think we're friends now. We are good friends. We both think Brexit is a disaster.
1: There we go. You agree on <laughs> he something. He still wants to raise
5: rates, of course. Does he?
1: Well, that's yeah, why I thought does. maybe that would be the optimal roundtable for a program No, like this. what's the discussion? The, what's discussion? the discussion is that you there want low rates forever. and. Wrong. He wants higher rates. Danny, it's good to see you. It's good to hear from you. Danny Blanchfrat, Dartmouth Professor of Economics.
5: He's stirring things up again. I'm trying. And former Bank of England
1: Monetary Policy Committee member. Let's turn to Luke Cower, UBS asset management asset allocation strategist. Mr Cower, good to see you, a good old friend. Luke, as here, you John. know, central banks, when they change, they take baby steps. And the baby step that I think we're witnessing over the past week, both with the Federal Reserve and now with the Bank of England, seems to be just reassessing the balance of risks around the outlook and also around the outlook for inflation. What's your take on that, Luke?
6: John, imagine if your your baby's first step wasn't a first step, if it was, you know, a pole vault or a high jump. That's that's the shock kind of the market had to deal with, even though we're talking about things that were only out you know, in 2023 and do require a lot of uh, of progress to be sustained and to be actually realized. So in in kind of looking at the Fed and digesting how uh, that might hit cross asset action, uh, what we're thinking about is kind of the two reasons why uh, Chairman Powell said that the dots did move up. One reason is that you know economic activity is coming in. So there's more confidence within the Fed that the baseline outlook that they achieved in March that they outlined in March is going to be achieved. So on the one hand, this suggests that continued inline data is going to be a force of pressure that continues to pull forward dots. And if you're you know, trading short-term interest rates, all you have to do is be more confident than the Fed that that economic outlook is going to be achieved, you can kind of continue to push the timeline on that front. Uh, on the other hand, it's clear that the the inflation risk, the balance of inflation risk, that jumping to a net 13 Fed officials thinking that the, the risk to, uh, to a core PCE are tilted to the upside, that also influences the forecast, the balance of risks, and when they think tightening might be warranted. So on the other hand, you have what we would expect to see uh, over time is that the ebbing of these inflationary pressures and upside risks, just as these these do turn to be uh, less persistent to avoid using the T word inflationary forces. So kind of putting this together, oh, I think what you would expect coming out of the FOMC and this is something we've adjusted to take account of is that that real yields break evens trade off ha- has moved more into the the real yield side of it driving uh, moves in the 10 year. Uh, that of course is going to also have an effect on the dollar. So it's about seeing less widespread dollar weakness and uh, that's the scope for that uh, deteriorating on the margin. What I will say is encouraging to say from a risk perspective, is that even as we've had you know, a, a broad dollar rebound in the wake of the FOMC, it's rallying more against the DXY components than it is against the EMFX components. So this suggests this isn't about a kind of a dumping of risk currencies, so to speak, or a less positive view on risk. It's just a reevaluation of the Fed, real yields, and what that means at the front end.
3: So, Luke, the more we hear the T word, transitory, the more people buy risk assets, exactly as you said. They're going further into uh, risk in order to get returns. There is a question at what point the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, other central banks start to take action just to curtail uh, some of the moves that we've seen. And I'm thinking of the mortgage market in particular. To Taylor's point earlier, this question of the composition of which uh, assets the Fed may pare back on its purchases, how much are you looking to the mortgage market to feel some pain from that as people start to question the elevated housing prices.
6: Well, I, I think the the main reason why the the Fed at this point is still purchasing in both asset classes is because it knows, as we know, that by purchasing MBS, it's it's sucking Treasury ball out of the market. And uh, you know, one one of the Fed's goals is to you know uh, use asset purchases to a certain extent to to calm markets, calm market volatility. So I, I think the the signal from the Fed that it's going in either direction in terms of both purchasing less and moving to uh, to raise rates at some undustined at some uh, inconclusive point in the future is is really just a signal they will both be that the Fed is moving more from a, a vol suppressant mode, a purely vol suppressant mode, in order to get us through the crisis and get the rebound, completely on track to one where the Fed is going to be more a source of of two way volatility. I think that's the real reason from that, not necessarily the nature of uh, the the components of the underlying asset purchases.
4: Luke, are you surprised by the cross asset resiliency with equities at record highs, VIX with a 15 handle and a very calm and well behaved bond market?
6: To a, to a certain extent, yes. I, I think the, the markets have been able to digest this quite well, uh, The a more hawkish than expected Fed. And I, I think kind of when we're looking through what and why, uh, what we talked about earlier in terms of the, the dollar being stronger, real yields being stronger, how far can that filter out? What's very important lately is that it hasn't filtered out really all the way to commodities. Copper had a, had a pretty bad move down, but that's kind of alleviated lately. Oil still pushing forward to new highs, so the market is still trading this idea of we're still getting very, very good activity going forward. The Fed has cut off right tail, inflation outcomes. Therefore, it's it's safe to buy equities. In our view, there are there are limits to this, uh, particularly the way that it's been uh, kind of playing out under the surface with uh, with the rotation to growth. That's not necessarily something we want to chase right now. Right now, the equity is at the headline level. We do think are are due for a breather. And if you look at over the past few months, equities have really moved sideways uh, on a global basis and on the S&P 500. So uh, we're not necessarily looking for a lot of downside but I think there, there will be an attractive dip potentially to buy going forward in the coming weeks. And this is just to do with uh, the market needing to digest that the second derivative is turning, the Fed is becoming less supportive.
1: Luke, always great to catch up. I promise you we wouldn't talk baseball. We won't. Has UBS got a call on Euro 2020? Have you got a country, a nation? I, I, I mean, I, I have to say the Swiss, right? The Swiss. Do you? I guess, maybe. (laughs)
3: Why do you have to say the Swiss? UBS,
1: I guess. Really? House view, right? You gotta go with you gotta go with Swiss. Switzerland. UBS asset management asset allocation strategist Luke Cower. Let's bring in Terry Haynes, shall we? Pangea Policy Foundry joins us right now. Terry, let's start there. What we can expect, as far as you're concerned, down in DC on the fiscal front.
7: Uh, what we can what we can expect firstly is a touted uh, roughly $1 trillion infrastructure package, like the one I've been talking about for the last month or so, uh, of which, as Lisa says, about $559 billion is new spending. It uh, brings up a uh, dichotomy for markets, by the way. You'll hear Washington pump high numbers, but then a lot of it isn't new spending, and that's important to understand. Uh, the, co- the last COVID relief bill, for example, uh, touted as $2 trillion, but only $1 trillion is going to get spent this year. The rest uh, run out over the next eight years. So, So you're going to get that. Uh, Are you going to get much of anything else uh, at this point? Uh, I really doubt it. Uh, The so-called Families Plan, another couple of trillion dollars, I think is going to be very difficult to pass, even with all Democratic votes. And then what you're into is you're into spending, which is going to be largely flat uh, uh, into next year, and uh, and you've got uh, the debt ceiling as a uh, as a potential surprise. But Washington's attention is going to be taken up between now and the end of September, um, uh, a time in which uh, the House and the Senate are roughly in only one out of those next three months, uh, with getting the infrastructure bill done, and uh, otherwise partisan warfare about all the other stuff I just mentioned.
3: As we talk about $559 billion of new spending, Terry, how much political momentum is there behind balancing the budget, behind raising taxes or cutting spending ahead of that August uh, debt deficit ceiling?
7: Oh, none. None. you know the both parties talk about uh, debt and deficit when it's uh, when politically when it suits them uh democrats did uh, over the four years of the previous administration but uh in in reality where the parties tend to come together and as as we've seen uh is on spending things uh Uh, COVID is a money spender. The China bill was a money spender. Uh, Those things are money spenders and uh, the parties come together around those things. But uh, most of the rest of it, you know, I think federal spending is going to be largely flat, as I say. Uh, But the rest of it, uh, you know, they will uh, they will fight over. But uh, but I don't think you're going to see anything beyond the infrastructure package today. Anyway,
4: Terry, where then is the momentum on how we're going to pay for all of this?
7: Oh, um, we're gonna pay for it taylor <laughs> uh yeah, you know, i you know the the devil's in the details on the infrastructure bill i I edged up my odds to seventy five percent on infrastructure uh uh, last night, but on the news, but uh, I'll still give you 25%. Things fall apart, and one of the details here is that uh, we don't exactly know uh, how they're going to try to pay for it, and they say they are going to pay for it, and they say they're going to pay for it without tax increases. So
2: hmm.
7: uh, there are not insubstantial uh, difficulties here yet, and I, well, then I think what uh, markets see. Is a a deal solidifying? I mean, the likeliest scenario here, the markets will see a deal solidifying over the next week, but they'll see wrangling around this deal and passing it out of both houses through the month of July. So there's going to be a lot of volatility here, and one of the details that will cause that volatility is exactly how the thing is paid for.
4: And you don't worry about debt and deficits during wartime. When then should we begin to discuss it?
7: Uh, you know the you know my view of this very simply is that uh, unless unless Washington gets a market signal that uh, that that th- there's too much debt or too much deficit, uh, Washington is not going to heed heed a call. You know, but my favorite example of this is the 2017 tax bill, and you know, no disrespect to anybody who put that together, but but you know, understand that the the the, the the red line for Republicans was they weren't going to, to spend they weren't going to go into deficit any more than one point five trillion over ten years. Now, when you're talking about, you know, how to manage a deficit increase, uh, that's a sign that you're really not serious about bringing the deficit down. And And that's the way Washington is these days, regardless of party.
4: Yeah. And
3: Terry, if it weren't that way, people probably would be accusing it of not recognizing the reality we're in of pretty low bond yields. Since Tom Keene is not here, I'm going to channel him and talk about how close we are to the 2022 midterm elections. Is this uh, fiscal package that we're seeing coalesce in Washington, D.C., going to be viewed as a win for the Republicans or a win for the Democrats?
7: Yes, uh, the answer to that is yes. Uh, Thank you. Uh, By infrastructure spending is bipartisan. Uh, uh, members of both parties want to see better roads, bridges, fundamental infrastructure. They all want to be able to go home and say that they did that. Uh, and uh, and the key, you know the key for me at the same time will be uh, seeing if they can goose them along more quickly. You know, there's uh, in my home state of Pennsylvania, there's been a. Ten, now a 10-year-long project is just to redo 40 miles of old interstate, and if it's going, things are going to take that long, there's going to be a lot of frustration out there in the world, so one thing that they're going to need to do is goose their states along and make things uh, go a lot more quickly in order to gain the maximum amount of political benefit out of it.
1: That's the best way of answering a Tom King question. Just, <laughs> yes. Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a
1: note. Terry, thank you. Terry Haynes, Fangia Policy founder down in Washington, D.C.